This episode is part of Season 2 of MesoTV, a program created and produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. We thank the following sponsors for their support of our organization and its work. Merck, the Gorey Law Firm, Early, Lucarelli, Sweeney, and Meisenkoten, and AstraZeneca. I would like to introduce you to you today Dr. Sean Drake, uh, who comes from the Henry, uh, Henry Ford Health Systems in uh, Michigan. Uh, Dr. Drake, thank you so much for um, being willing to participate in this uh, discussion and um, providing this much, you know, much needed information on the use of vaccines and what type, what vaccination schedules people with um, mesothelioma should consider following. So I will turn it over to you, Dr. Drake. Thank you, Mary. So welcome everyone. Um, we'll get started. We're gonna go through a bit of a presentation on vaccines. First though, a little introduction to myself. So I'm a general internist. I work in Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. I graduated from the University of Michigan Medical School and then the University of Alabama Birmingham for residency. My practice is in clinic as well as on inpatient, uh, taking care of general internal medicine patients, all adults. I'm the chair of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Committee for Ambulatory Medicine for the system. And I am the medical director for complex care for the Henry Ford Health System. The opinions expressed during this talk are my own. They are not those of the Henry Ford Health System, and I have no financial disclosures to release. My personal reason for being involved with the foundation is really my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law is a survivor of mesothelioma. He was diagnosed at a very young age, has undergone chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, and is doing quite well now and is part of the foundation and invited me to come have this talk with you today because this is an area that I feel strongly about. This is an area that really helps people. It's one of the things within medicine that we do that really prevents disease and really gets people out of trouble. So this is something I feel strongly and passionately about and I hope to share some of that with you today. As far as how we're gonna to talk today, we're gonna to do a general background about vaccines and then talk about some specific vaccinations. We're gonna talk about timing relative to things such as chemotherapy and surgery, things that'll be important for this group, as well as special considerations, including splenectomy, thoracic surgery, things like that. So in general, vaccines are meant to prevent disease. They're there to inform your immune system of potential viruses and bacteria that your body may face. Vaccines contain either part of the outer coating of the bug or a live attenuated version of the bug. And so unless stated otherwise during today's talk, vaccines we're talking about are really about the outer coating dead viruses or bacteria. There's a few special ones that are live, which we will talk about, and I'll be sure to point that out, but the default assume all of these are dead virus or bacterias. <laughs> Some viruses are given in series. Some viruses are given just a single time. So we'll talk a bit about timing and how all of that works out. So going into some of the specifics on viruses and uh, on vaccines, the first one to talk about is a tetanus shot. So we often think about tetanus shot when uh, we get injured, such as stepping on a rusty nail as seen here. Um, but these are bacteria that live in the soil and can get us sick even with more minor uh, cuts and scratches. 
Um, they cause a condition called lockjaw, which is a painful closure and spasm of a lot of muscles, including the ones of the jaw. So that's why it's called that. And should be given every 10 years as a form of prevention. Uh, these are given to all ages. So other vaccines to talk about. One is diphtheria and pertussis. These are often called whooping cough. This can cause acute viral, I'm sorry, acute bacterial infections in young children typically. Um, very serious illness. They can get quite sick with this. Um, and how that impacts us as adults is that they do recommend receiving uh, one Tdap vaccination, which is a combination of tetanus with diphtheria and pertussis in our adulthood. So you should get a tetanus shot every 10 years. One of those vaccines should be a Tdap as opposed to just a plain tetanus shot. Other vaccines to talk about, one is hepatitis A. Hepatitis A is a viral infection. This occurs uh, when con eating contaminated food or through drinking contaminated water. And it's a very serious viral infection that can affect the liver. Um, can even cause liver failure. Some people get quite sick with this. It, we see outbreaks of this periodically throughout the United States, um, including one that we've had here in Southeast Michigan. It's given as a two dosage vaccine, six months apart. And this is a vaccine that's been around for a little bit. It started in 1995 being given to children and adults who may not have received it. I did not receive it in my childhood. Um, should consider for travel purposes if you're going to an area where it is endemic. If you have local outbreaks, such as what we had here in Michigan, if they have underlying liver disease um, or other risk factors. We'll talk a bit about hepatitis B as well. This is another viral infection that also affects the liver. It's this, this one is spread more through bodily fluids as opposed to contaminated food as hepatitis A can be causes both acute liver disease as well as chronic liver disease. This is also preventable with vaccine. It's given typically as a three vaccine series given initially and then at one month and then again at six months. Um, and there is a combo vaccine available with both hepatitis A as well as hepatitis B to help reduce the number of times that you need to get stuck with a needle. This also has been around for some time. It's been given to children since 1991, and adults should receive this, again, if they're traveling to areas where this may be endemic, if they have underlying liver disease or other risk factors. Other important vaccines to talk about today, one is pneumonia. Pneumonia is a bacterial infection of the lungs. In 2019, Per CDC data, over 1 million hospitalizations and nearly 50,000 deaths in the United States from pneumonia alone can lead to sepsis, respiratory failure, even death. So this is very serious and people can get quite sick with this. Many times it is treated as an outpatient and you receive antibiotics and you feel better, but sometimes it requires coming into the hospital, sometimes even into the ICU. The pneumovax, which is one of the vaccines that we use to prevent pneumonia, is available. It's recommended to all adults above age 65 and to adults younger than age 65 with certain risk factors, including cancer, such as the group we are talking about today. It's also recommended to anyone with 
history of smoking, diabetes, heart disease, underlying lung disease such as COPD or asthma. And it's typically repeated every 10 years. There's also another pneumonia vaccine called Prevnar, Prevnar 13. This is active against certain strains that are not covered in the pneumovax. Recent guidelines have de-emphasized a bit of the importance of this because we've done a very good job of vaccinating children with this one as well. And so there's not as much in the community as there used to be. Um, but it is indicated still in some patients, including those with cancer or prior history of cancer. And it's typically given just a single dose in adulthood. Shingles, which is a reactivation of chickenpox is this painful blistery rash that can occur. Um, chickenpox, a virus that causes that um, called varicella zoster, um, stays in our system. So after you uh, caught chickenpox when you were a child, I had mine when I was age five, um, you feel sick for a little while, then you get better and you typically don't ever think about it again. Unfortunately, it hasn't left you. So the virus is still in you. It's actually lying dormant in your nervous system. And during times of stress, uh, both psychological stress as well as physical stress, such as going through surgery, going through chemotherapy, things like this, it can reactivate. And when it does, it comes back with a vengeance. This is very painful rash that comes along the line where the nerve has been comes along the line where the virus has been hiding along that nerve, and it comes in a stripe along the body, usually just a single side at the time. It's this very painful blistery rash as seen in the picture here. Um, and that pain can actually even continue after the rash fades away. It's called post-herpatic neuralgia and can be quite difficult to treat. You can spread chickenpox to those who have not had prior chicken pox, um, but if they've had chicken pox before, you can't necessarily spread that to anyone. Um, you can't catch shingles from someone else who has chicken pox or shingles themselves. The shingles is a reactivation of the virus that's already in you. So they recommend this vaccine. Current vaccine is called Shingrix. This was released in 2017 and has a better antibody response than the older vaccine, which we used before called Zostavax. It's given as two injections, separated by at least two months apart, and is indicated to all adults above age 50. This is a vaccine that can be given to patients with weakened immune systems. The prior vaccine, which was a live virus vaccine, uh, was not available for patients with weakened immune systems, but this one is. It should also be considered in those who did receive that older vaccine. Um, the older one called Zostavax had been around for a while, but did not give us as good of an immune response as we had hoped. Shingrix does a much better job of that and should be given in anyone, including those who did receive that prior vaccine, age about 50. Flu shots, influenza. This is given seasonally through the end of August through about March is indicated to all people age six months and above. So get, it's effective against certain strains each year. And the reason for that is that there's a different composition in the vaccine each year. The CDC, along with others, basically make their best guess. They see what is coming through 
usually in the Eastern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, and see what are the most likely viruses that we'll be facing this year in the United States, and then base their uh, construction of the vaccine accordingly. So it's a different composition each year, typically with four different uh, viruses, um, and it's made fresh each year, and you should be receiving that sometime between end of August through about March. As far as the types of vaccines, there's a live attenuated version of this, a nasal vaccine. That's typically not used in adults. It's typically only used in children um, and should not be used in patients with weakened immune systems. So unlike most of the vaccines we've talked about up to this time, those were all dead viruses or bacteria, just chopped up chunks of the outer coatings of these uh, viruses and bacteria. This one is a live one. So definitely should not be used in patients with weakened immune systems or even the household contacts. As far as the other flu shot, the more typical flu shot, um, there's a few different options now. There's a typical one, which you use in patients age six months to 49 years, a different one that's has the same components, but is a little stronger for getting an immune response in ages 50 to 64. And then age 65 plus, there's a yet a stronger vaccine version, which is basically four times the original vaccine version. There is versions that are available that are preservative free. And there are also versions that are egg free as the initial flu vaccine is developed on chicken embryo yolks. And so patients with severe egg allergies may not be able to take the typical flu shot. They have made a version that is egg free. COVID, this is the big question right now. There is not currently an available vaccine for this. There are multiple ongoing trials uh, into this. Um, last count I saw was about 40 different ones worldwide of different products that are being made. And we are very hopeful that we will have something in the near future. I don't have anything to report on that at this time. Other vaccines, which we're not gonna necessarily cover in this talk, but I should mention, um, there's a lot of childhood vaccinations polio, MMR, mophilus, influenza type B, rotavirus, meningococcus. These are all important childhood vaccines, but again, I'm limiting our talk more to adults. There's also important ones to consider with travel, especially international travel, yellow fever, cholera, rabies, Japanese encephalitis, typhoid, meningococcus, among others. So if traveling, especially traveling internationally, um, the CDC website is a very good source to look for travel advisories and what is recommended. And of course, talking with your physician about what may be necessary. Some of these may not be always available at your typical primary care clinic and may require specialty uh, consultation or travel clinics. As far as timing of when to get your vaccines, um, if you are facing a serious diagnosis such as mesothelioma and you have upcoming surgery or chemotherapy, getting caught up on as many as possible and reasonable before uh, surgery, before chemotherapy is recommended. Should get a yearly flu shot, um, ideally prior to going through chemotherapy or surgery. If you're in the midst of going through chemotherapy at this time, discuss with your oncologist on the best timing um, as 
many forms of chemotherapy may affect the immune system. Um, timing of how to do it relative to when you're taking your medication may be important. So talk with them. Sometimes we talk about doing this what's called mid-cycle, mid midpoint between last dose of chemotherapy and next dose of chemotherapy. Special considerations, including those who've had their spleen removed. So Splenectomy is a surgery that's often done as part of major abdominal surgeries, and the spleen is an important organ in uh, the immune system. Helps us with a lot of things, especially what's called encapsulated organisms. Um, so taking out the spleen, which may be necessary for your surgery, um, does have some issues relative to vaccines. If there's a plan for a surgery coming up where the spleen is or may be removed, ideally you wanna do these vaccines two weeks prior to surgery. If that's not feasible or done, then doing it at least seven days after surgery. The three vaccines in particular that we worry about relative to the splenectomy are Pneumovax, meningococcus, and Haemophilus influenza type B. Pneumovax is something that should be given, ideally two weeks prior, um, and then repeated every five years. So including in those who had their spleen removed many years ago, you should continue to receive a Pneumovax every five years. Ditto with meningococcus, should be repeated again every five years. Haemophilus influenza type B is, should be given once, ideally prior to the spleen being removed, if not, uh, at least seven days after, and then does not need to be repeated again after the initial vaccination. For those that are undergoing thoracic surgery, so a uh, big issue here is really being up to date on all your respiratory infection vaccines. That includes va uh, vaccines for flu, pneumonia, and that Tdap that we talked about earlier. Ideally done before surgery, if not possible, done at least seven days afterwards. And in patients with this history should continue to get their yearly flu shot and make sure that they are up to date on the, that tetanus, the Tdap, as well as the uh, pneumonia vaccine. As far as for those who live in the house with you, um, really should be up to date on all vaccines to help prevent against spread. Um, couple of specific things though, the nasal flu vaccine that we said is sometimes used in children um, should be avoided with close household contacts. Ditto for uh, the oral polio virus as that is a live virus vaccine and could get a person sick. So those are ones that should be avoided in close household contacts. Mm -hmm. As that actually is pretty much the summary of what I wanted to present to you today. Um, mm -hmm. If there are any questions, I think Mary's going to ask a few at this point. Thanks. Yes. So, Dr. Tureka, a question I have, um, you know, you practice internal medicine. Um, many of your patients will be seeing oncologists and surgeons. How do you track that they've had these vaccines? Because, you know, we have the phenomenon of chemo brain. People are stressed. They, you know, they forget. Um, who keeps track of who's had what and when? Great question. Ideally, it should be the primary care physician is ultimately should be the source mm -hmm. of truth. Um, in our health system, mm -hmm. that's who is uh, the ultimate source of truth and who is usually the one providing all of these vaccines in consultation with thoracic surgeons and then 
hematologists and general surgeons that are dealing with uh, abdominal mesothelioma. So we work uh, in a healthcare system that has a very robust electronic medical record. And so any mm -hmm. member of the team is able to see which vaccines have or haven't been done. And I'm also thankful living in the state that I am that we have a very robust system uh, at a state level. So even if patients receive their vaccines at another health system within our state, I usually have access to that and I can see what vaccines have been done as well as what vaccines mm -hmm. are due. So you are correct, it can be complicated. It's hard to keep track of all of these different things along with the appointments and all the other things that are going on. Um, but I put it as an important thing because these are the things that can get, a people, can get people very sick and um, it's very preventable. So I, I put it as a high priority, especially on my patients who are undergoing chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And I wanna make sure and we actually do outreach to our patients who have not had certain vaccines to try to get them to come in to have these done. Great, and you know, in the time of COVID now, um, there is some hesitancy about, you know, having your yearly physical, et cetera. So how do you advise and guide your patients? Well, great question. It, it is a challenge, right? You know, um, many patients, especially whose immune system isn't 100%, are leery of coming into the doctor's office. That's okay. We offer at our institution a lot of video visits and virtual visits. Um, it's hard to get mm -hmm. a vaccine through the telephone line, but mm -hmm. what we do for those patients when they are due for vaccines, we actually have special clinics that are basically scheduled times to have patients come in just for a nurse visit for to get a flu shot or pneumonia vaccine. We've also been experimenting with uh, doing drive-up flu shots. We had several clinics that we were doing drive-up flu shots this year, which was very helpful. And we got a lot of patients vaccinated that way. In addition, you can get these vaccines at your local pharmacy many times. And if you're reluctant about coming into the doctor's office, and I understand, but if you're out shopping and you need to go to a local, especially large chain type uh, uh, pharmacy, pharmacists usually can provide these services and then just inform your primary care doctor that you've had the vaccine done. Wonderful. That was actually going to be my next question because I know, you know, many people do, you know, stop in, as you said, to a chain pharmacy. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, perfectly, I I'm perfectly fine with that. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as the mm -hmm. vaccine makes it into your body, that's what I care about. Not so much who's necessarily giving it. And then um, I know that we had discussed in an earlier call about um, immunotherapy and immunotherapy in terms of vaccines and I don't know that there's really a lot of data out there. Um, do you have any insight as to patients who might be on some of these immunotherapies, what they should consider? Great question. Um, I, After our call, I attempted to look up on that. And you're right, I can't find very good data to support exactly mm -hmm. the best strategy. Of course, talking to your physician, your oncologist uh, about things and how this particular immunotherapy you're on may affect your immune system. That's also going to be important mm -hmm. on how to time uh, the vaccination. So as I said, certainly with chemo, we talk about this concept of kind of mid-cycle between mm -hmm. you know, one dose of chemotherapy, next dose of chemotherapy. When we're talking about immunotherapy, sometimes people are on this continuous, they're on it for a very long period of time. Um, so mm -hmm. it's tricky is the short answer. And I mm -hmm. don't have a great answer for exactly what to suggest in patients that are on immunotherapy mm -hmm. other than talking with your physician. Right. And I guess as guidelines start to be developed and we start, you know, seeing some, you know, uh, case reports or, 
you know, some uh, try, some data from some of the hospital systems, and we can, you know, we can update, you know, um, the patient population on this. Absolutely. One thing I will say about yes. it, though, mm-hmm. is that in patients that are on other forms of biological agents, things outside of mesothelioma, but they're on, say, immunotherapy for uh, um, rheumatoid arthritis or other sort mm-hmm. of things that are affecting their immune system, the current recommendations are continuing with the normal dosing and uh, timing of all of their uh, scheduled immunizations. They're not recommending to skip or mm-hmm. hold on patients that are on biological agents for their rheumatoid arthritis or their Crohn's disease or other things like that. So um, uh, just one one last question. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, what does the data look like now in terms of uh, people getting their flu shots? Um, do we have a greater amount today? Um, because I, I, I think there is a great health concern with COVID and the flu mm-hmm. converging together. Do we see that people are seeking out their shots or or because I don't have great data yet as far as how many are accepting or doing their flu shots. I can, uh, at a national level, I can say at least within our system, we are seeing an uptick. We are seeing many patients mm-hmm. who previously never would take a flu shot getting their first flu shots this year. And I can say personally, you know, as I've talked with patients, I've given them the concept that you know, a lot of the symptoms of COVID overlap with symptoms of influenza. And if you show up sick in November, December, January with cough, fever, shortness of breath, everyone's going to be thinking COVID, 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 COVID. And um, it may delay therapy for influenza. You're going to be tested for both of these things. Um, We've developed a a nasal swab that actually tests for both influenza and COVID. So if we have anything, we can keep people from getting sick uh, between now and March uh, when uh, we get a lot of influenza. Uh, if we can keep people out of the emergency room, out of the doctor's office, out of the hospital with these acute respiratory infections. Like I said, I don't have a vaccine for COVID right now, but I have a vaccine for flu. And that's one of those viruses that we know is going to be floating around. We have seen a decrease in the amount of flu uh, in the Eastern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere this year. And we think a lot of the same tactics that have been used to prevent COVID are actually helpful for flu things such as social distancing and masking and uh, washing hands, those all are helpful on preventing flu as well. I still recommend get a flu Mm -hmm. shot. It's going to be very helpful for you. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, and I think also that even, um, you know, respiratory infections, you know, just a regular cold, I think that also is is a glimpse to let people know that perhaps, um, you know, they've broken, uh, they've broken that, uh, you know, the, the safety of masks and hand washing. So I think yep. some of this is, is important as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you very much for the time you, you gave us today. And uh, I think this is very helpful guidance and certainly may go back to you with questions. It's uh, great to, you know, really have a conversation with somebody with expertise in this field. So thank you. And, um, just want to say thank you also for your brother-in-law who's on our board of directors, who has been a leader in the patient community. And um, like you, I hope he continues to do well. Thank, thank you, you, Dr. Very Drake. Much. I appreciate this time. Take care then.